Hey everyone, it's uh, David Barnett from davidcbarnett.com, the blog site, YouTube channel, iTunes, SoundCloud, Google Play podcast, as well as others, where I talk about buying, selling, financing, and managing small and medium-sized businesses. And today, I've got a special guest with me. We've got Brian Nichols, who is the author of a couple of books on stock market value investing. Um, and, and we're going to touch a little bit on that probably towards the end. But the reason why I have him on the show today is because he owns and runs some businesses today. We're going to talk in particular about, about, well, we're going to talk a little bit about both of them, but he's also an investor who's made investments in small and medium-sized businesses too. So we're going to talk a lot, a little bit about how Brian takes a look at opportunities when they're presented to him as an investor in a business, someone who want, is willing to put money in to a business in exchange for a rate of return, but doesn't necessarily want to be involved in the day-to-day -day of running that business. And we're going to talk a little bit about you know, some of the, some of the things he's doing in his current businesses to try to grow those businesses. Brian, why don't you just give us a little bit of a, of a recap maybe on your history and how you got into the position that you're in today. All right. Thanks David for having me. It's, um, you know, it's, I've been in the stock market for, or investing, uh, my whole career. I started off uh, blogging about stocks that I was buying and selling. And by the way, I'm, I'm not a trust fund kid or anything like that. I, I, um, I, I worked and I saw the value of investing from my grandparents growing up and uh, worked in high school and college and elsewhere to um, save money and invest it uh, and made investments that, uh, that paid off over time, over a, a long, um, you know, 15 years. And uh, back when I wrote the book in 2012, I was primarily investing in stocks, um, publicly traded companies. Um, and then as time has progressed and the markets have become less of a, a value, um, because my book was about value investing, as the markets have become less of a value and we've gotten further and further from the recession and um, more into a point of where um, stock multiples are at historical highs. I've I've tailored that investment more towards um, private markets, investing in small, well, medium, large-sized uh, businesses, um, technology startups, and also um, my own businesses. Which, so um, I've yeah. Well, we'll just let, let's just uh, stop for a moment to touch on the idea of value investing because for people who may not be familiar, what essentially that is, is looking at what a business is doing and what kind of returns they're bringing to the shareholders and then deciding, does it make sense for me to buy this stock based on what the company is doing? And this is really the way that people look at small business acquisition because people say, if I put my money in to buy this business and I have to run it day to day, what, what do I then get in as far as earnings to compensate me for my time and as a return on the money I'm putting down? And right. at, at one time, that same logic applied in the stock market. And today, it seems more about speculating on the movement of future prices, right? It does. Yeah. Um, and so, uh, I, I talk about some of that in, in, in one of the books that I wrote as well, Invest Local. But when do you think that that really started to change and, and you, the opportunity for value investors started to evaporate? Well, QE, quantitative easing, it was it definitely played a role. I mean, in, in pumping the prices of um, equities higher, 
you know, when I really started to make a um, move into investing and um, having tremendous success was ironically in 2009. You know, mm-hmm. it was um, it was during the the depths of the recession, and I looked at companies like a um, like a Johnson and Johnson or Coca Cola or you know or companies like that 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 were or, um, even banks. I bought all into banks and technology companies. Um, and you look at a lot of these companies that were still doing fine. They were they were they were thriving. The economy was starting to pick back up. There had been stimulus um, introduced to the market to to save uh, save the banks. You know, too big to fail was coming about. So we had there. So in looking at that market where everything had been beaten down so hard, everything had had been you know just just beat and beat again. Buying in them those prices was a was a tremendous opportunity or turned out to be. And then over time, there are situations that present themselves. Um, uh, one that I always go back to is um, uh, a company that I'm, I've invested in uh, called XPO Logistics, a company I followed for years, and I, I bought into it because I liked, I believed in the CEO. I actually modeled my entire business strategy after his particular strategy and the way that he runs and builds businesses. And you look for certain situations like that or certain certain events that create misplaced value and and you you try to exploit those opportunities. And because in but in today's market right now, those opportunities just don't exist. I mean you may be able to you know you can find a stock sometime that you know that outperforms expectations or, or you know, has good earnings and, and tanks 20% for no reason you can find. And sometimes that's a good swing. But the days of the days of really of of if, if you just buy a stock right now and you say, I'm going to hold it for a decade and it's going to return, it's going to be in a good position for me. I honestly could not, I would not feel comfortable to tell people that right now. Yeah, It just seems that the markets are due for a major correction. It just Historically, it doesn't just keep moving forward. There has to be peaks and valleys. There has to be. It's almost like when the correction came after the last Great Recession, the stock prices actually probably went to where they probably should be anyway. But providing good rates of return, maybe some of them were better deals than others. But, you know, when I see, um, you know, when, when someone says to me, here's a stock I'm going to invest in, and I say, well, you know, you're willing to hold that for 70 years before you get yeah. your money back. Like, you know, yeah. it, 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 it doesn't make sense to me. And that's why I like so much the world of, of small business because uh, yeah. people do try to sell their businesses at crazy multiples, but they're usually not very successful um, because right. it comes down to earth. I think so much more quickly people, when they're going to buy a small business, they're looking at, I'm going to go in there probably and run and manage it. So it's, it's, I think it's more difficult to gloss over the fact that maybe the rate of return isn't reasonable, uh, you know, because people have to write usually a big check. Unlike, you know, with stocks, I mean, a lot of people invest in the stock market by making a very small contribution regularly off their paycheck and, you know, it goes through mutual funds and all that kind of stuff. Um, when, tell me about your, your first business though, because you, that you're running today because you are offering data services to people in the finance profession. What, what kind of tools are those and, and how did you come across the opportunity? 
Well, it was just through my my experience in the market. I I had ran a um, at one point when my book was coming out, I ran a premium service website where you know um, I would list my portfolio publicly and um, cover certain companies and talk about them that I really liked. And and what I got frustrated by was that a lot of the data that I looked at, I couldn't find. I couldn't find if I was investing in a company like Pfizer. I couldn't find all of its drug data. I couldn't find its 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 sales in China or its revenue in Europe or its net profit margins in, in South America. I couldn't find all of the in-depth data that I believe goes into making a company a good investment. It's not the income statement balance sheet cash flow. It's the numbers that create the income statement balance sheet and cash flow that matter. And it's usually, it's the little things, the little, the little areas that, that the market doesn't see coming, problems in Europe or problems with certain product categories that cause issues for a stock that can, you know, cause it to significantly miss earning expectations or fall or rise or whatnot. So anyways, I built a business around the fact that that data did not exist. And we began building a database of companies, publicly traded companies with all of the data that you can't find anywhere else. And we also had the core data, the financial data, but we built it around all of these, these different tiny details. And at first, it just started off as a way for finance professionals to come and visualize the data and then analyze the data. You know, you could compare Under Armour's footwear sales to Nike's footwear sales in 1992, if you wanted to, to look at like the trajectories of the companies. And but we then started to apply artificial intelligence technology and we found that doing so by having so much more data, whether it be what's called fast data or slow data, allowed us to uh, create products that were far more effective than what we've seen on Wall Street. I mean, I know that, uh, you know, our, our earnings predictions, for example, are, you know, 64% more accurate than Wall Street consensus estimates. And these are over a period of, you know, eight quarters. Our, even the ticks that are generated, the stock ticks have out, you know, performed the S&P by 250%. It's and the portfolios are there so for people to see. But, but it's you know I'm not I'm not trying to you know advertise the business or 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 anything like that. I'm I'm, I'm just. But it's it's I guess it's important in understanding what you know what my thought process and why I built it why I built it like the market that wasn't there, and I saw that that market something that I used wasn't there. So therefore I went to serve that market, and it's it's been very it's done very well so the the people who are subscribing to this service it would be advisors who are you know trying to help people pick the right things for their portfolios um, what um, what would those people typically look like are they individuals or are they small firms most of our customers are financial advisors research analysts buy and sell side analysts that work at bigger firms on Wall Street family offices. You know, we have a lot of data like um, Marriott's average room rental nights for Las Vegas, or I'm just making something up. But we have a lot of, you know, regional and specific data. So we also have a lot of people in the, you know, beverage and hospitality industries who, 
you know, they come to our service so they can analyze certain trends in the industry, whether it be, you know, hotel night rentals or, you know, uh, drug prices or different things like that. So like an industry, perhaps an industry player trying to decide about whether to make an investment might be looking, trying to figure out what their competitors are doing in the same market. Very true. Very true. That, that's one use case that we've seen over the course of time. Okay. And, and the talk about the challenges in this business that kind of led you into your, your new business, which is about payments. Right. So, so what we did is we, you know, we had a lot of, we have a lot of different customers in a lot of different industries. And, you know, the, the way that the payment landscape works right now is that, you know, you, you look at a company like PayPal and you think, wow, they're massive. They're huge. They're everywhere. Everybody uses PayPal. But in reality, you know, PayPal with $600 billion in volume is still less than 1% of its addressable market. If you look at international payments, in-store, person-to-person, e-commerce, mm-hmm. it's such a big space. And now that the world is going to more applications, people have applications that they use. People have certain preferences. And we ran into this problem where we would have some people we were billing through Stripe. We would have some customers we were billing through Square. Uh, some we were using PayPal, you know, and, and then we Bitcoin even. So we, we had a lot of different areas where we had people who were using one thing or not the, or the other. And then our, our billings were messed up. Our customers, they were hard to manage. The, the, the transactions, if they were on a subscription, it was difficult. So, so we created software that was originally, we just built it for us. And it was that we could consolidate all of these different payment applications and services and even cryptocurrencies into one, one solution so that we could manage all the customers, we could manage all the transactions, and that we could seamlessly accept payments and a customer could pay however they wanted to without all the headaches. It was just a, a seamless design. It was easy as that, you know, didn't cause any additional problems for us. But what we found is, is that first off, it's a, it's a great value add for other businesses like us. And second, it was very easy to integrate it into any other web or mobile application with a single line of code. So we, we had, um, we made the decision to separate that business from the analytics business, treat them as two, and now commercializing the payments business of which we believe has a ceiling that, you know, far exceeds anything that we've done on the analytics side. It's, it's just, a, it's a different mindset depending on the type of business you're running. It really is. You know, I, I've got a lot of firsthand experience with this because I, I had a, a few years where I was managing revolving credit programs with American Express. And <clears throat> one of the I was dealing with what they called the mid-market space, which were companies that had sales between uh, 10 and $250 million. And so I would go into a company and identify certain ways that they could use a revolving credit to extend their days payable outstanding and improve their their balance sheet. And it was easy for me in the mid-market space because if I identified a couple of vendors that a company could, could pay through the American Express platform, um, they would basically max out their credit with us. With a, with a few <laughs> vendors, right? The, the real problem came with the people trying to sell the enterprise solutions because the, the really big animals out there, the really big companies, 
they don't want to have multiple platforms for payments because then they have the same problem that you're addressing from the, from the receivable side. They're trying to manage all these different um, vendors and they're trying to pay them in all these different ways. And then they say, look, like you might help us with our days payable outstanding, but if I have to pay someone hours and hours a week to reconcile these different systems back into our accounting software, the savings end up being wasted through labor. Right. Yes. And so, so I know that this is a really big thing because of course at one time payments were easy. It was all just checks in the mail. Exactly. (laughs) Or cash or cash at the till. Right. And now we've got all these different things and, and more and more of our, even our traditional companies that, you know, I've got a, someone I know who's looking at machine shops. Well, Machine shops, you know, a lot of wire transfers, a lot of checks still, but more and more the, the customers are saying, we're moving to this new payment platform. Now you have to move if you want to continue to do business with us. And a lot of the time it's forced by ultimate top-down, you know, sort of power. If, if you're selling to someone who's really big, then you're just going to do what they want. If, exactly. If you, if you want to be paid, right? And, and so that's what intrigued me so much about hearing about this solution um, what, what's the name of the company? It's Hayd Pay. Hayd Pay. Yeah, pay.com. Okay. Is where we, and then we... So <clears throat> you're operating the, the subscription service to financial advisors and analysts. You have this problem. Other people must have all already, already discovered this kind of problem too. What made right. you decide to take a run at this knowing that other competitors are likely out there or will be soon. Okay. Well, the, um, let me give you the short. So, you know, when our analytics business started doing well, you know, we were, we were approached by, by VC and such at different points in time. Uh, we turned it down because we, we never really had the ceiling that, it just, it was a good business. It was a nice business. It's what I would categorize as a small business. You know, we were never, we didn't, we weren't going to compete with Bloomberg. And if we took the chances to compete with Bloomberg, it could completely wipe us out and bankrupt right. us in a year, you know? So we, we just kind of grow at a steady pace and it's, and we're happy with that. And it was just, you know, we were, we were satisfied with the, the, the positioning of the business itself, but there was no need to bring anything else to it, so to speak. And, and by ceiling, by ceiling, what you're referring to is that you can pretty much look at the landscape of potential clients and realize, Hey, there's probably a few thousand subscriptions we can sign up or maybe a few hundred every year we can add, but we're not going to add a hundred thousand subscribers. Right. Right. It's a niche market and we have, you have to understand your market. You have to understand what you are and be realistic. You know, of course you want to, you know, it's just, that's part of it. You know, part of running a business, part of buying a business, understanding what the peaks are for that business or the best and worst case scenarios analysis. But with hate pay, it was just, it's, it's completely different. It's a, it's a completely different uh, mentality. It's a completely different um, approach because the payments industry is so large. Mm. I, um, I noted you know, PayPal earlier about, you know, it's $600 billion in volume and only half a percent of the, of its addressable market because it's just such a big market. 
And you know, previously I told you that I've always I've always modeled after somebody, even with with investing. I when I first started investing, I didn't know much about it. I was a psychology major. You know, I, I didn't know much about it, but but I but I saw people doing illogical things. I saw that I was using stocks and or companies, and they were just tanking. And I started reading and studying Warren Buffett, the way that he looks at things, and some of his quotes made sense to me. And I said, well, I can. I can profit off other people's insanity too, you know, and, and, and that's more or less what I did. I, I modeled what I did after what someone else who had already come before me had done it successfully. And then I added my own little twist to it with business. I do it the same way. I've always, I, I've always, I've always booked up and I've interviewed the guy a dozen times. I've always, um, and not, not a household name, but his name is Bradley Jacobs. It's a, is a guy who essentially built five multi-billion dollar businesses from his kitchen table in three years. Just incredibly successful. He now runs XPO Logistics, which is a $15 billion company. He's grown since 2011. It was actually one of our, it was my, you know, one of my biggest stock picks that I've been screaming from the rooftops people to buy when it was 13 and it got to 100. Because it's just, I've interviewed the guy a dozen times and his, his, his philosophy is so methodical, but it makes so much sense to me. And I asked him, I said, how do you know what industries to go after? How do you know what's a good industry? How do you know that, that if you're going to go into a business and it's a billion dollar business or it's a billion dollar opportunity, how do you, how do you know that? And his, his response to me was this. He said, I look for massive industries, first off, massive industries. Well, it doesn't get much bigger than payments. He said, I look at industries that are highly fragmented, which means there's just a lot of different players everywhere. There's just a lot of different pieces that make up this market. And then he said, I consolidate that industry. I bring it all together. And then I leverage the network of all of those different pieces. And he said, and I introduce a technology to make the existing solution better than it was before. And and there's, of course, there's a lot of decisions you have to make. There's a lot of work that goes into that. It's not, it's not checker, you know, or it's not checkers where you just move pieces on a board. It's chess, you know, business is chess. So, you know, there's a lot of things that have to go right. But I've, I've always, that statement that he said to me, you know, five years ago has always just left that strong imprint in my brain for some reason. And when we split this business and I looked at it and I said, it's got those characteristics. And no, I don't have the capital to go and buy PayPal or Square like he does. He can go buy $100 million businesses. But the good thing about it is, the beautiful thing is that we don't need to because we can leverage their networks. We can leverage their reach. We can leverage their technology by consolidating them into a our own solution. And then collectively, we have something, we have technology, a solution that nobody else has, nobody else can compete with. We have something unique and that serves an actual problem and that it introduces innovation, even if it's with blockchain payments, Bitcoin, Ethereum, the ability to do you know, text message payments through Bitcoin or the ability to do recurring payments through um, blockchain payments. There's there's just different little introductions of innovation and technology here. So, I, you know, to answer your question, I think that, you know, in, in looking at how to decide with, with different businesses and how you look at them, how you run them, 
you know, I've never been in, I've never been in a situation like this. I've invested in companies that I thought had tremendous, um, tremendous uh, potential. You know, I've invested in Lyft. I've invested in uh, DraftKings. I've invested, I've invested in so many public and private companies over the years, and many have turned out good. A lot of them have failed, but I've never personally had the opportunity with something that I felt had that type of opportunity to grow from this point in such a massive market. And so, yeah, I mean, that's, so that's, you know, that's why I'm first off excited about it and the, the traction that we're gaining. And second off, it's, um, it's why, um, you know, we've decided to go this route and split them and really focus on the individual businesses and realizing that one is kind of, you know, it's where it's at. It's, you know, if we can get 10% growth, we're happy, but the other one needs a little bit more attention. Needs a little more, a little more behind it, if you would say. Well, it's, it's, it's interesting because, um, you know, a lot of the times, you know, and <clears throat> excuse me, I hear people talking about, you know, the, this, there's a startup culture going on where people are encouraged to run with ideas and stuff. And because payments is so huge, I think there's a lot of people who get attracted to the idea, oh, I'm going to create a new payment player, a new <laughs> way to do payments. And of course, you know, if, if PayPal has half of 1% of the market, you know, what tiny portion are they going to squeeze into, right? Right. And, and right. so what you're saying is instead of trying to simply create another payment option, you're, you're instead going to allow other people to use the existing ones in a better way. And so, right. so someone who says, geez, you know, we need to add PayPal, but boy, that's going to add complexity to our operations. Well, then they can easily add it through adding a service like yours. That is correct. Right. That is, that's, that's in the nutshell. And like so Jim Kramer said. Are you going to be able to get those payment guys to start promoting you? We don't need to. I don't think, I mean, I don't, I don't think we need them to promote us. I mean, their, their, their business is sufficiently you know, is doing well on its own. You know, there's, there's ways that we can, you know, create revenue through using them within our network, but there's, but it's not a, it's not necessarily a, a question of if we need them to promote us, we need them to do good. If they do good, if they grow, it just it just helps our odds. It just it, it improves our odds. It makes our solution, I believe, look look all the much better. You know, if PayPal is dominating the entire market and everybody's using PayPal, then there's no reason for a solution such as ours because everybody's using the same one. Right. It's the fact that it's so fragmented. It's the it's the fact that it's such a fragmented market that makes it a solution such as this work. I, I think it's a lot of fun. I, I think this is, I think it's exciting. Um, you mentioned though, investing. So before the call, you had mentioned to me that there were a couple of small businesses that you had made investments in. Can you, cause a lot of the people that listen to this channel are, are looking at buying a business and some of them don't have enough of their own equity to put in. And so then it opens the door to the idea, maybe I should find a partner or someone who has some cash who can come in and do this with me. Can you talk right. a little bit about some of the things that you look at when somebody brings an opportunity to you? I actually watched the video that you, you had talked about how 
the difficulty and, and people saying, you know, well, why don't you just buy a business and have somebody else run it? You know, and that doesn't exist. The, the, the Coca-Cola factory analogy of, um, of people, you know, that, that manager versus someone to run your small business, just, it doesn't exist. It's so hard to, it's, 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 a, it's, a, it's, it would be impossible, I would think to, to buy a, a business and have somebody else run it and and the way and care about it the way that you care about it because you have that financial interest in that company you know it's it's a different different animal so you know i've always so with that said i don't have time you know either it would be impossible for me to you know to buy a, a bunch of businesses and run them myself and you know i'm i'm it's hard enough with two i'm needing people a lot smarter than me you know it's um but you know, when I've made investments, especially private investments, I've always looked for people who not only have an idea, but somebody who's had success in, in what they've what they've done. You know, whether I've invested in real estate deals like cabins or such in a you know, in the um, in mountains or um or you know, beach houses or or you know, that's kind of been my um my focus or or technology companies you know people who've had the expertise they've had the success but you know they just they just need the additional um the additional capital to get going and yes it's it definitely makes it a lot easier if you have a, a group of people you're working with or people you meet that you can go into deals with you're at, you're you're certainly going to get access to better deal flow if if you're able to do that so the the point though that that I want to get across is this because a lot of a lot of people who are are buying a small business they 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 want to be the only owner you know they want to get their arms wow. around it because they want to make it theirs and a lot of them from from their own point of view have a hard time understanding why somebody else might want to give them money and and what I'd like to address is oh. the fact that this is a symbiotic relationship because mm -hmm. the, the, the buyer who's going to become the manager, they might need the additional capital, but there's capital out there that people want to yeah. deploy. They need those critically interested owner managers in order to keep their money safe. Absolutely. You know, that's one great thing about the stock market right now and the, the prices of this, of stocks and even the values of homes and properties of how high everything is, is that there's capital is available right now in a time that it's, that I don't think there's ever been an equal um, or a, a comparable um, time. It's, it's, it's I, at least I don't remember one, maybe, you know, someone who's much older than me would disagree, but it's, it's, um, it's not hard to find capital and it is, and there's no greater, um, illustration of that, then you look at what happened with the ICO market over the past couple two you know, two years, the billions of dollars that have raised. So, you know, there's, you know, capital is definitely out there. Yes, it's hard to find, but it's, you know, you, you have to find, you know, and like I said, you know, we've turned down BC for one of our business. You have to, you know, if you're one, of, you know, if there's a partner, you have to understand that it's, you know, it's got to benefit the partner too. It's not just to, you know, I always have a rule. I don't give money to businesses that I'm paying if I'm keeping their lights on. You know, that's not what I'm trying to do. 
You know, I'm not, I, that's not what I'm trying to do. I want to put money into businesses that are using that capital to grow, whether it's vertically, horizontally, businesses that are using capital to grow. And I think that that's a, you know, a lot of, I think a lot of business owners have a hard time understanding that, you know, if you're, you need to keep the lights on, go to a bank, you know, if or try, but it's, you know, there's, there's just a difference in needing capital or the type of capital that you pursue. Yeah, no, it's, it's, um, you know, here's a plug for my book, Invest Local, that I put out in 2014. But one of the, the, you know, one of the fundamental rules that I always put forward is that an investment that goes into a small business from an investor, not from the owner, it has to either show me as the investor how it's either going to improve the business by cutting costs or help the business improve sales and earnings, right? Exactly. That. Because if I deploy capital into a business and, and, and that business owner is going to pay me like 10 or 12% for that money, he's got to show me how it's going to improve his business by more. Right. Because exactly. If, if, he, if I'm leveraging him to get a better return on my money and he's leveraging my money to get an even better return for himself, well, there's nothing more secure than putting money into something that's going to make even more. Right. And so many small business owners or entrepreneurs, they, they, they fail to realize that. So many of them fail to realize that. That's 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 a perfect point. That's and that's absolutely correct. So uh, we're we're getting almost to the end of our time. I, I have one more fun question before I ask you to give us some some contact details. You mentioned earlier QE quantitative easing and how it has affected the valuations in the stock market and probably also some of those other asset prices like real estate in, in major centers and things like this. Do you think that it's going to ultimately result in higher levels of inflation? Uh, yes. It's, it's, that's a hard question. It's that's you know it's it's such a it's it's such a, a tough debate. You know it's it's hard to um, it is that's it's a it's a tough debate. You know it's because the thing is is quantitative easing has been going on for so long now. You know there was I mean I remember years ago during the, I can't even remember which round it was that that you know that the that CNBC and, and Wall Street Journal and everybody that that particular round and I, I wish I had a reference on on my head was going to was going to you know create inflation and was going it was going to be unstable and impossible to manage but yet here we are and it still just keeps on going it you know the the crazy thing about um, about bubbles okay whether you're talking about inflation you're talking about stock market you're talking about housing the housing bubble is that it always reaches a point or it always reaches a level that that it cannot be explained, but you cannot time when it's going to pop. Okay, the housing crisis, you think of the dot-com era, it should have popped way before it did. You know, even quantitative easing, it should have, it should have, you know, you're, you're looking at these things as, um, you know, trying to time the, um, the eventual collapse. And it's hard because, 
you know, because you're dealing with people who are buying. If something's going up, people keep buying until it eventually stops. And it just, you know, and you, you see what happened in 2009 or in 2000, you know, or or um, even with cryptocurrency prices uh, this year. You know, there's there's you know there's there's so many things like that. So it's I, I you know so when somebody asked me that, it's it's hard to determine whether or not when it happens or if it happens, if we would be able to correlate it to quantitative easing because timing it is so difficult in any type of, um, I'm not sure if that makes sense or not, or if it's a good answer, but it's, um, uh, but I guess, you know, I always try to think about it as, as far as, you know, if, and if it something causes inflation or doesn't, and can you correlate it to, to something else? And I think it's getting hard to do that with quantitative easing, given how long it's been since we mm-hmm. just keep going down this road. So, so what you're saying is that the money's out there, it might be tied up in the stock market or real estate prices. And then if and when the money comes out and starts to affect other markets, consumer goods, et cetera, it'll be hard to actually pin it on that activity. I think so. Yeah. I mean, yeah. If, if you look, historically i mean it's it's i mean at what point can you pin you know something that's been going on for you know however many years it's been now you know i mean it's it's hard to you know it's hard to say that that would be it i think there's a you know the economy the economy looks strong to the naked eye and i would never say that the economy it that it's not a good economy i think that i think that right now is it's the best economy that i can remember you know but the bigger threat, I believe, is just the fact of, of prices. You know, housing prices are so high. You have, you know, stock prices are so high. All of the prices are so high. And to me, that's the issue. It's not really an issue of whether or not the economy is strong, I don't think. But more of the prices and that we are in need of a correction, not a recession. Hmm. Sounds like the psychology degree is more useful than uh, than than you think. <laughs> <laughs> Brian, where can people find you online if they'd like to learn more about the stuff you're doing? Well, we made it easy. You can, if you know Hade H A D E, you can put a platform or a pay behind it. So HadePay.com or HadePlatform.com, and um, you can find us there. And um, uh, you can also find me on um, Twitter, LinkedIn, all of the regular social media outlets. Awesome. Thanks so much for joining me today. It's been a very interesting conversation. Hey, thank you. It's been fun.